This is Starting Somewhere, a 10-episode podcast from the University of Melbourne, all about internships, finding one, landing it, and making the most of the experience. I'm Buffy Gorilla. I've only got one job through an application. All the others have been networking. And now I'm host of this podcast. And I'm Ben Pawson. I applied to be a flight attendant, but forgot to include a picture. And now, somehow, I'm co-host of this podcast. So we're clearly the best people to help you start somewhere. Welcome to Episode 3, Getting Your Internship. In Episode 2, we gave you some ideas on how to figure out who you want to target for an internship. Now we'll turn our laser-like focus to the application process, how to help you stand out and maybe deal with some rejection. Our starting point is that you've got your five internship descriptions and applications are due soon, but not too soon, because you've planned ahead. So what is the process going to look like? Rems Ambassis tells us what it looks like at NAB. That's a four-stage process. The first part is a short online application form, followed by some online testing, then a video interview, and if you're successful through all of those stages, then a structured face-to-face interview. NAB's probably at the formal end of the application and interview spectrum. At the informal end of the spectrum, registering for the intern subject, my preferred method. But sometimes it could be just a chat and a handshake. Most will be somewhere in the middle. Application form, acceptance, awkward first day, and we'll be going over your first day cheat sheet in the next episode. Then more or less success. Hopefully more if Ben and I have anything to do with it. And that video interview Rem mentioned, we help you light the way later. First, let's dive into the application form. I like to look at my CV as the skeleton of every application form. I've done a visual CV, a one-pager, a three-pager, and I have a database of all the competency responses that I've ever done. But I've applied for a lot of jobs, And changing careers made it necessary to do that, and moving cities too. So where do you start if you have none of that? Here's what Hamish Taylor, master's student and intern at the Herald Sun, thinks. As a young person, you know, you're constantly doubting your own capabilities because you've been a student pretty much all your life, and you put yourself out there and cold emailing in a weird way is really intimidating experience and it can really knock you back when you get rejected like 10 times my advice would just be just stick to it and really think about what you can actually bring because what I've been told by a lot of people who I've worked with is youthful energy and ideas that come from young people are really undervalued And so don't perceive your lack of experience or your age as a setback. Oftentimes, it's actually a massive asset to be young and to have fresh ideas. And particularly in old organisations like News Corp and, and Fairfax, you know, they're really looking for young energy. If you have nothing but youthful energy on your side, how do you translate that into a stellar application? Warren Fraze, Senior Advisor in the Experiential Learning and Employability Area of the University of Melbourne, knows what employers are after. They are looking for experiences, and we do have a a whole week here at Melbourne called Make Experience Matter, 
which really focuses on that particular issue. So we do stress the importance of getting involved in the student clubs, getting involved in some volunteer work, no matter how menial the work might seem, because some international students particularly find that they don't want to tell their parents they're working in a convenience store because they're sweeping up things and cleaning toilets and doing things that they don't want them to know about. But the experience of that is just tremendous. I mean, the fact that they can be punctual and they can keep a store clean and juggle a number of tasks like filling up the petrol tanks and changing the price on there at the same time serving a customer. They're multitasking, they're dealing with customer service issues. So those skills are very transferable. So I would encourage students to don't so much worry about the status of the role you're doing right now. It, it, the skills are very, very applicable to graduate employment. Mary Trumbull, a client solutions manager from LinkedIn, agrees and gives us some more tips on setting up your LinkedIn profile, a public CV that should grow as you do. First of all, I think the best thing you can do is actually just have a look around. So if any of your friends or your peers have a profile, just start with that because it can be overwhelming. It's a very native process when you set it up in the sense that LinkedIn will prompt you along the way. But the hardest part is getting the wording and the language right. So have a look at what other people have done as a bit of inspiration. You want to start with a really professional photo because first impressions count. Having a photo, first of all, just increases the engagement from people who are looking tenfold. But you don't want it to be that Snapchat filter or Instagram selfie. So start with a professional photo. And then you want to go through and add any work experience you've had and be really detailed about it. So even if you were a checkout chick, what did you have to do? Did you have to manage stock at one stage? Did you have to restock shelves? All these things, employers look at it from a holistic view, not at the actual skill level. So was she able to problem solve and, and rapidly respond? I was, Mary. I was. I always had side hustle and those skills did transfer and helped me land one of my first jobs. And I remember responding to one early application for a job with a scenario from Boy Scouts, where I was a leader for a while. We're so awesome. But you can go overboard. Your application, mm. did you do anything jazzy or was that straight no. down the line? Straight down the line. All right. Accidentally did a five-page, double-paged it CV, which I soon realized during the summer was not what you're supposed to do. Put all my volunteer work there. They were like... We'll put it in anyways. But when I um, actually went to my interview, I did this new like one page cover letter, but only my like marketing and social media coordinating kind of volunteer work that I've done. So that was a one page summary of what they actually want to know about me. Michelle Lau's one pager sounds more digestible. As someone who once had to help shortlist candidates, think about what the HR team needs. This can be a way to earn some extra points. We didn't have an algorithm to help, which is now something recruiters can do. Shortlist at the touch of a button using smart algorithms to screen candidates. This scares me a little. But I, for one, welcome our robot overlords. Here's Warren Frey's with a few ideas for humans and how they can do their application forms. Warren's tips can be applied to both internship applications as well as real jobs. We do stress it's important to understand what the organisation wants in terms of the selection process. Mm. So we really encourage them to read the job ad. And if they're stating they only want 300 words per criteria, that you actually stick to that limit. Okay. Don't go over because they won't like it. But another organisation may not care. So it, again, it's really understanding what the requirements are for that particular role. So the resume and cover letter is fine standalone, but they really don't mean a lot until they're matched to a, a job or a job ad. So what we'll say to them, 
them is you, you've got it about 80, 85% right, but there's still another 15% or so that needs to match and align to the requirements mm. of the, the graduate role that you're applying for. So we really do stress that the alignment is important because the employers and the recruiters are only looking pretty much at the immediate job fit. Of course, they're looking at potential as well, but utmost in their mind is making sure the graduate can do the role that's on offer. Lauren Berger, CEO and founder of the Intern Queen, seconds this. So we pretty much consider it gospel. I think my top three tips are, one, follow the directions on the application, as silly as that sounds. Make sure you're sending them everything they're asking you to send. I think, two, is try to connect with someone on LinkedIn that works at that company or several people and just let them know that you're applying for that internship. We'd love to connect with them. If there's anything that they can do to help, that'd be great. If you can find people on LinkedIn that are graduates from your school, so they're alumni, I think that's fantastic. And then my third piece of advice is, a couple things. One is make sure that you're applying for enough things. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. I don't care if your father is best friends with the CEO of a company. You never know why people make certain decisions. So make sure that you're applying for enough opportunities so that you'll actually land something. And then finally, you know, make sure you have the latest and greatest advice. I think that out of everything we offer, our YouTube channel would probably be the most helpful. So make sure you're taking advantage of that and then any other free resources around you like your career center. And now we come to the numbers game. Someone I greatly admire once told me 100 applications, 10 interviews, one job. We now have another opinion, courtesy of the intern queen. And remember, this is the U.S. That's the United States of America. You know, I usually say 10 to 20, especially for summer when it gets really competitive. And then if two weeks go by and you haven't heard from anybody, then I would apply to 10 more. (sighs) And just keep on applying. One summer when I went to New York, I applied for 117 internships. It took me until try 118 to land something. So I would just say to someone, like, if you if you knew that you would get an internship, as long as you continued applying, wouldn't you continue to apply? So keep going and you will land something. And what was that internship that you landed? What was 118? That was Backstage, which is a theater trade publication out of New York City. They publish Broadway reviews and actors auditions. Writing 118 applications sounds like a full-time job in itself, which is probably not a bad way of looking at it. For a short period, you are the sales and marketing manager of You Incorporated. And with 117 no thank yous, Lauren Berger could probably give us some tips about handling rejection. But luckily, we have psychologist Neil Wilson, who will help us out later in this episode. With so many people doing internships, you have to find a way to grab the hiring manager's attention. Here's Karis Palmer, who recruits interns for The Conversation. Don't be afraid to inject your personality into your application. So at a base level, skills are pretty similar. So we're looking at hundreds of applications where the skills are pretty much the same. So the thing that helps people stand out a little bit, I think, is to inject a bit of personality. For example, you know, one of our most fun and successful interns was somebody who put in his application, hi, my name's Fred. In the last 12 months, I travelled to 27 countries. And I think that makes me a good candidate because, you know, I've seen so much of the world. Now, you could say, well, great, you're obviously at an advantage that you could afford to do that. But at the same time, there was a real sense of this is why it's useful to you. Don't be afraid to inject a bit of your personal life into it because that is 
the kind of thing that can set people apart in their applications when everyone's got the same skill base. As Leslie Nope says, you are a rainbow-infused space unicorn, and you just need to find what it is that can make you stand out, but not seem weird, unless you're applying for a position where that might be an advantage. In that case, let your difference show. For most of us, it's hard, and something your super honest friends can really help with. Good luck with the applications. Ask people to read them. Don't rely on spell checkers, and do your research so you know what you're getting yourself into. Even if you take the corporate road, like some people that Tess, a law student, knows. Of those friends of mine who've gone through the corporate internship process, their experience of it has been highly positive. I think for those who have applied because they think they should, because they don't know what they want. It's often those people who don't enjoy the experience as much, and I think if it's a case where all your friends at uni are all applying for the same grad job or the same internship, that can be stressful. But I think those who've sort of stuck to their own path and done it their own way without too much competition and comparison has been the most beneficial to the relationship. I think. No matter where your application lands, waiting to hear if you've made the shortlist is excruciating. While you're waiting, maybe consider some preparation for your upcoming interviews, or you can sit around watching Netflix until you hear, and then panic. That's always been my personal strategy. But once you do receive the good news, how can you ensure you are interview ready, especially when you have such a short time to make a winning first impression? Research by U.S. company Classes and Careers found a third of all hiring managers make up their minds about a candidate within the first ninety seconds of an interview. That is six Insta Story videos. If that is the case, how do you make the right impression at breakneck speed? Most advice on what not to do is intuitive. Don't be late. Don't be negative about yourself or your previous employers, and don't dress inappropriately. And never be afraid to be the best dressed person in the room, like Anders Furs. Do you remember what you wore to your interview? <laughs> I do. I wore pants. I went out and bought a blue checkered shirt from Maya. Did I wear a tie? I think I did. A tie as well. Yeah. So it was pants, shirt, tie, no jacket. <laughs> Very dapper. Yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> it, was, it was the smartest I'd ever looked. I can tell you. <laughs> But what happens once you're sitting in front of your interview panel? Here's Natasha Tan, a development associate at the University of Melbourne, who interviewed for a prestigious internship slash traineeship with Case, an international education foundation. I had three interviews, and they all lasted about an hour. I must say, yeah, that's very intense. Yeah, it was quite intense. But you know, when you're at that point when you're looking for a job, you're just very focused on selling yourself. In a sense, how do you sell yourself? For me, I've always believed in my abilities and my experiences. I always think of my time at the university very important in networking, getting to know the place that I'm at, and getting to know people. So. I was always able to exchange information and always able to talk to people, so I found that an interview was the same. It was all about sharing that the information and experiences that I've had at that point when you're at the interview, they would have already looked at your resume, so they know what you're capable of. They they know things that you've gone through, but you were there very much to tell them 
a lot more about your personality like and who you are and they want to see if they're comfortable enough having someone like that in the office or working with someone like this in the office. You'll really have to sell yourself if you choose to intern at one of the big four management consulting companies. Grace Chen, a business undergrad, went through the interview process. Sorry, assessment center with EY. Do you remember any of those questions that really stood out to you as like, oh, that's interesting? Uh, so for EY especially, they're very onto better questions. Generally, it's questions that they can ask to prompt thinking. So for example, who will drive cars in the future when technology will be doing it instead of us? So they asked me that during the interview and I didn't really expect it because I've never really encountered a question like that. So I had to really think on the spot. You just have to be very aware of the industry that you're going into. They do quite a lot of promptings on what department you think you want to be in, why you want to be in there, any current news that you know of, the current situation in the industry. She lived to tell the tale, but has some regrets. What were some of the thoughts that you had after you left the assessment center? I was just like, oh, I could have answered the questions this way, this way, which, which is a terrible thing. You should never do that. But I couldn't stop thinking. I think we all do that, Grace. Don't worry. <laughs> It was just like, oh, I forgot to talk about this. But then I also thought about how I actually really enjoyed meeting all the different people. Everyone who was at the assessment centre were also very, very nice, both the candidates and the people who were interviewing you. And I was thinking that if I did get an offer, I would 100% accept it. Not only did Grace Chen get the EY internship, she went on to secure a full-time position. A bit of post-game analysis will only make you better next time. We also heard from some people on the other end of the interview spectrum, more of the it's-who-you-know variety, much like the kinds I've benefited from. Annabelle Finkelstein is interning for $100 a day with Stake, an Australian fintech startup that uses a lot of interns, but pays them and gives them the chance to help the business grow. I was actually quite lucky. I knew some of the people who were working here, and I spoke to them and called them up and they told me about what Stake does. And I was really interested in that. I came in and spoke to Matthew and he gave me an interview and I've loved it ever since. I started here in August and have interned over the holidays as well and absolutely loved it and have seen the company grow even in that small time frame. And if using your connections is something you can do, then use them. But if your top five internships are all at the formal end of the spectrum, you need to be prepared to devote time to preparing those applications. This is what Kate Mellick at ANZ found. So the processes for all of the applications I made were very lengthy. So you have a lot of tests to do. And then an assessment center, some of them had video interviews as well. So I found it quite intense or draining a little bit, especially if you're applying for three or more. So did you have to do a video interview? Not for ANZ, but for one of the other internships I applied for, yes. Was there stage lighting, makeup? Oh yeah, I went all out pretty much. I set my laptop up, had to find some good lighting and just went through the process. The one I did, they ask you the question and you can re-record as many times as you want. So it wasn't too much of a pressure situation. So I need a Hollywood movie set to prepare my internship application video? Or it'll just look like a cheap MTV video? Does anyone watch MTV anymore? I don't think so. We tracked down former intern Lep Beljak, who's now the social media coordinator here at the University of Melbourne. Here's what you need. 
Your equipment checklist. You're probably going to need a laptop. They will usually have an inbuilt mic, so you should be fine. Most laptops these days have got everything you need. They don't perform well in low light, so you're going to want to get some good lighting. Play around with the lighting. Go to a window during the daytime, get that natural light. You want to be facing the light, otherwise you're just going to be a silhouette and they will not be able to see you. So get that natural light lighting up your beautiful face. Also, in terms of framing, I would suggest kind of lifting the laptop up a little bit. Otherwise, you're going to be looking down. They're just going to be looking up your nose. You don't want that. Bring it to eye level. So you definitely want to have sort of your head and shoulders in the shot. The top of your head, don't cut the top of your head off and don't crop it at your neck. Have it a comfortable distance away from you and, and, and yet yeah, raise it up a little bit and be yourself. And pay attention to what's in the background. You don't need a wall of law books, but no one wants to see your laundry. I guess that's the point. It's not just you on paper anymore. It's you as you present yourself to the world through all of the new tools we have to use these days. There are less ways to hide, but we can show more of who we really are. So we need to make sure we think about how we look from all sides. Michelle Lau, who's doing an intern diary for us, and she's a good example of how to create a personal brand to answer the questions interviewers will have before they even meet a candidate. So that's what my Instagram is. It's very like bloggy. And I've also recently started like a little YouTube channel and a blogging site. So all of that to really promote myself and get in contact with a lot of other people. So if somebody that you've shown an interest in shows an interest back, they yeah. can find stuff, they can see who you are. Exactly. Maybe answer those difficult questions about who is this Michelle person and what she like. Exactly. Yeah. So without a cover letter, I can kind of really show myself already, like visually. With great freedom comes great responsibility. Living a 360 degree life means more ways for you to show your strengths, but for employers to find your weaknesses. Employers are becoming experts at spotting fake CVs and false credentials. Be prepared for recruiters and HR teams to cross-check your CV with your LinkedIn profile. It's crucial that details on your CV and your online profile are synced, because if they aren't, you'll appear untrustworthy, which means ego surfing might become something we should do regularly. And what's that? Googling yourself and worrying about the result. Oh, yeah, I've done that. I'm haunted by another Ben Pawson in London who was an undergrad and who described himself as kind of a big deal. Ugh. <laughs> That's a good one. Mine usually turns up me, but with pictures of gorillas and the occasional Buffy the Vampire Slayer link. Which is not a terrible brand to be associated with. The way you, you portray yourself as a professional is so important. Getting that right so that the employer is says, I'd like to have more of that. So it's important to probably get the headline right in, in, your, in any social media. The other thing is, I should mention it probably now's a good time, is digital dirt. I wanted to ask you questions about digital dirt. Have you heard this phrase before? No, what's digital dirt? So Sounds good. We have heard this phrase, mm -hmm. and that is that digital footprint of ourselves, maybe up to shenanigans, maybe up mm -hmm. to some good things, in our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram profiles that employers might mine when they Google future employees. What would you advise to someone about their digital dirt? Get rid of it all? Keep a little bit? Look at your privacy settings. 
particularly on Facebook, because they can be quite confusing. Maybe log out of Facebook and have a look at what your Facebook looks like to someone that's not connected to you. What can they see? There might be stuff that you didn't know was public. I would suggest Googling yourself, seeing what dirt is out there. And if there is dirt, clean it up and just be mindful of what you put out there. Because once it's out there, it's out there forever. You cannot delete it. You can delete it, but someone might have a copy. Everything that you put out there, imagine that a future employer could see it. Just think of it in that way and make sure you check your privacy settings. I feel like I need to go back and revisit my digital dirt. Buffy Gorilla. My Instagram and my Twitter, they're all on my name. But your Twitter mm. is your name. My Twitter is my name and everything that I post there, I'm very careful about. So I don't go on any crazy rants. For example, I wouldn't rant about someone that's connected to my employer, even though I might get upset about something, I would never put that on any social network ever. Don't do it. <laughs> it's not a good idea. So is there any way that digital dirt can be a good thing? And what if we see it as a digital fingerprint unique to us? My approach to this really is I'm going to embrace the fact that I'm on social media. So I don't hide who... I am at all. And I think who I am actually, and I know this is advice and not applicable to everybody, feeds into my work. So I. Your personal brand. The Anders Furs brand, journalist and writer with 1,555 Twitter followers, which will no doubt explode with his involvement in this podcast. Yeah, exactly. And I don't go around going, oh, God, what's my personal brand? How am I going to massage my online presence? I'd be lying if I said I didn't. But I don't worry too much about that because employers are employing me, the human being. I'm not just a bunch of skills. I'm a bunch of skills that coalesce into a person. And so I put it all out there. So I put my Twitter account on my resume. Again, this is probably because I'm applying for jobs that need you to show that you know what this is. But I don't see why it doesn't apply to other industries as well, if you're comfortable with employers seeing that stuff. I am, because I realise very on. I just want to be authentic. I want to be me. If you don't like who I am, then you're probably not the employer for me. And if you do find some dirt that you definitely want to get rid of, cleaning it up may not be as easy as you imagine. Your own posts can be gotten rid of in bulk by tools like TweetDelete.com or Social Book Post Manager, both apps, that the New York Times says do work, but they take some time to get right. They also recommend using the app TimeHop, to randomly show posts from your past and see if you want to delete them. A kind of nostalgic way of policing your own past. It's the stuff other people post about you that is really hard to get rid of, but it's just as public. For all the scare stories about some Facebook posts getting someone fired, finally, here's some good news. Employers want you for more than just your grades. They want you for your best whole self. Oprah would be so proud. There is a bit of a trend happening now where employers are not looking at grades to the same extent as they used to, say, even three years ago. They're now looking for that broader experience. So they don't want someone who's just been in the library the whole time and spoken to nobody. They want people who can go out there, make connections, be comfortable in talking to people of all different cultures, be assertive in some ways, and you know, to put their point of view across. Now, working in a university, having said that, I, I stress, like, I stress, warning alert, warning alert. <laughs> I stress it's important to get get you know good grades because obviously good grades tell an employer that they're disciplined enough as well. So there's 
behind the great is a quality that they exhibit as well. But it's that balance. I think that getting that balance right is really important. It's true. NAB has changed its graduate recruitment entry criteria to allow a more rounded cohort of applicants to apply. So from their 2019 graduate program, NAB will no longer require graduates to have a minimum grade point average of 65% or above. Here's Rem Zambasis again. With this GPA change, do you foresee that your work is going to get harder now, that you will have to assess students in a different way without that barometer? I don't think so. I think what we will see rather than the work getting harder is possibly a greater volume of applications or interest in the program. And that's okay. Because for me personally and my team in looking to hire the very best for a graduate program, if we can get more and more applications from interested people, then it gives us a chance to put them through the exact same assessments as everyone else. And hopefully of that larger set or larger volume of applicants, pick the very best. Even if you find a really promising internship, as Warren said, submit a great application, like the intern queen talked about, that perfectly matches your LinkedIn profile, which Mary helped us set up, and you turn up punctually, dressed great, like Anders, and make a good first impression in under 90 seconds, you really sell yourself, like Natasha Tan did, and make your panel super comfortable, you won't get everything you go for. I'm sorry. And that rejection hurts. As my mom always says, they're loss, which is supportive, but not always helpful. Sorry, mom. I applied for a fellowship with NPR, and while I knew it was a bit of a career reach, I thought, why not? But the rejection came last week, and so did the tears. While it's unlikely that an unconscious bias doomed white middle-class Buffy to not get that great fellowship, it happens. But things are changing. The use of blind recruitment is increasing. Here in Australia, Westpac, the Victorian government, and the Australian Bureau of Statistics have been using it. In this process, names, gender, and other identifying details on an application are withheld from interviewers, hopefully leveling the playing field. In the U.S., EY requests education details be blanked out to attract a wider talent pool from government schools. But some professions are judged on how you look or how your voice sounds. These people often are chasing their dreams, and rejection is an everyday occurrence. Gigi Bacon is in year 12 and is considering an internship. My dream job would be obviously working in theatre, like either in music theatre or theatre theatre, or film just performing because it brings me so much joy and I feel really happy about myself when I am performing it's getting to that point that's pretty awful the road of just knockback after knockback and people telling you you're not good enough and doubting yourself and I think especially in that industry like it's really hard because it's so personal especially when you do an audition and it's so hard if you don't have that voice to feel like you're valued because you're just not fitting into that box of musical theatre I just don't fit into like conventional kind of Each time you get a rejection, you can't help but question your self-worth. And our dumb lizard brains are terrible at managing that. Fortunately, we have a professional to help us out. G'day, my name's Neil Wilson. I'm a clinical psychologist and counsellor working at Counselling and Psychological Services at University of Melbourne, offering services to students and, and staff. 
for any psychological issues that they might be going through. When we're starting out in anything new, we always start with that burst of positivity. And biologically, it floods our brain with dopamine, which is a motivating chemical. But we need the environment and reality to back us up every now and again if we want to keep access to that nice chemical in our brain. But when we get constant rejections, it starts to eat away at that and it affects our self-esteem and we start to feel a bit more anxious. And if we're feeling anxious, our brain starts to figure out reasons why not to do something rather than to actually do something. Talking to other people about what their experiences have been, like people already in the industry, like, did this happen to you? And I would imagine that most people will nod their head knowingly and go, geez, yeah, that was terrible. I ended up thinking this, this and this. Everyone we've talked to has received rejections. You will too. Sarah was open about her career disappointments, but don't worry. Things did turn around for Sarah, and she has a solid plan for the future. Go, Sarah! I submitted my application fairly close to the closing date, so I think I may have had a better chance if I'd gotten in earlier. But yeah, it was was pretty disappointing to get knocked back from that. But I did hear about a particular research project that I was really interested in. So I thought, oh, I may as well submit an application. Mm -hmm. Again, it was a bit last minute. I didn't get in. Again, I might have had a better chance if I'd I'd submitted it earlier, but I guess I'll never know. (laughs) So when it happens, and it will, what can you actually do? Neil Wilson again. If there's no one else around and they have to do it themselves, the best equaliser that I'm aware of is to get as much oxygen into your brain as possible. It's pretty basic in in some ways, breathing out longer than you're breathing in for an extended period of time. Um, The brain also needs glucose, so you need food. (laughs) But these are things that people forget, especially if they're doing it by themselves. One of the easier methods is to check in with a supportive human being. They're really good because they also remind us to breathe and eat food and <laughs> go to bed and maybe get us out of our own head a little bit. That's really, really important. That's that's what support people are really great at because they kind of give you that little clip and go, no, 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 come on. <laughs> but if it's just you doing it, sometimes it, it runs away with itself a little bit. One of the real dangers I think that interns fall into with rejection is to become quite isolative and push themselves away from people that can help them out because we all have to deal with rejection. And sometimes we're stuck in our own head because a lot of this work has to be done alone. Sometimes our head gets negative and we need someone else to pull us out of that, which can be a counsel, but can also just be someone we know to say, look, yeah, this is really terrible at the moment, but we need to keep trying. Well, that was a packed episode. Highs, lows and highs. Speaking of highs, Ben and I would love to hear how your internship search or application process is going. You can contact us at starting-somewhere at unimelb.com.au. In the next episode, we take you through day one, what to wear, what to bring, and how to deal with the nerves of actually starting somewhere. Starting Somewhere is brought to you by the University of Melbourne External Relations Team. The producers and editors are Buffy Gorilla and Ben Pawson. Our supervising producer and original concept is from Dr. Andy Horvath. Thanks to everyone who has made Starting Somewhere a reality. Stay tuned for future episodes. Music